Hello, and welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Katherine Garrett. Today, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Tara Bynum, Assistant Professor of English and African American Studies at the University of Iowa. Dr. Bynum is a scholar of early African American literary histories before 1800. And in 2022, she published a really excellent book called Reading Pleasures, Everyday Black Living in Early America. Thank you for having me. This is absolutely delightful. I'm super excited to be here and to be a part of this conversation. If you don't mind, could you give my audience sort of the elevator pitch for what your book is about? I would love to give you an elevator pitch of my book. I'm super excited about it. Reading Pleasures, as you have identified the title, is about four Black writers largely 18th century writers, but then there's David Walker, who publishes his appeal in 1829 and 1830. So there's David Walker, Phyllis Wheatley, John Maron, and James Albert Ukasa-Graniosa. What I'm interested in is how they write about feeling good. And I argue that they, one, do write about it, and two, that there's joy, there's pleasure, there's all sorts of good feelings interwoven into Wheatley's poems and letters, Graniosa and Marin's narratives, and David Walker's appeal. And I guess my aim is to kind of get us to begin to think about kind of the complexity of emotions and feelings that have always been available to Black writers. It's not a contemporary phenomenon in the way that my students might sometimes suspect. There are ways to, ways that it was acknowledged by those who were writing at the time. And I think Wheatley, Merritt, Graniosa, and Walker end up being kind of good points of entry because they are already canonical. Some might be more famous than others, but their writing is accessible. It's available in print or online. So they're not the folks that you have to go to the archive or to the special collections to find. I just think that's such a fascinating concept for a book. The idea behind this podcast is to sort of look at 18th century women's letters, letters that people might not pay much attention to, but it's been sort of prevalent in my podcast since the very beginning that a lot of the letters that I'm finding are white women's letters because those are the letters that are saved and the letters that people keep. So what ends up happening is that you get this really rich idea of what these white women's lives are. And then sometimes if this is somebody who owns enslaved people, you might see someone's name in a letter and that's all you see. And you don't get to like learn more about the richness and depth of the enslaved community's lives. But something that I always want to try to focus on is that every single enslaved person on George Washington's plantation had just as rich and deep an inner life as anybody living in that house. We just don't have 2,000 letters that are saved by them. So when there are examples of writings from people at this time period, I'm just so excited. I'm so thrilled. And I'm so happy that you are reading these so closely to find out more about people. So I was very excited when I saw your book. I guess I would add is that, yes, it's definitely close reading, but it's not necessarily so close that I'm reading against the grain or like reading into something. And I think I'm paying attention to where they use words that mean good feeling, where they say that they are happy or where they say that they are pleased. I decided to take them seriously in those moments and truly wonder like, why haven't I thought about this? Why, why haven't I read about this before? So I think that it's also important to note, at least as I 
have moved through this research over the years is that what I read is is somewhat easy to find. It's not it's not hard to see. I've listened to some of other talks that you've given, and you mentioned that sometimes it can be hard for people to wrap their minds around the fact that Black people and enslaved people at this time were and could be experiencing pleasure. I used to be a tour guide. I used to give tours at a plantation site, and I found that I sort of noticed something similar. If I tried to talk about something like the fact that enslaved people who lived further away from the plantation house would have things like parties and things like that, which I think just is like, of course they did <laughs> as people living out there in a community. But at the same time, if I mention something like that, I just know that there's going to be somebody on that tour that hears that and is like, well, how nice of Thomas Jefferson to allow these people to have a party or something like that. I would sort of self-censor when I was talking about it. And I think in many ways, like as a white tour guide at a plantation site, like there's a lot of things I have to be careful about what I'm talking about. But do you have any advice for how to talk about things like pleasures and sort of depth of people's experiences without people sort of twisting what you're trying to say? Well, I think there's always a risk of the twist. So I don't necessarily know how to prevent the twist because it doesn't take much for someone to twist something. But I do think that what I have taken to doing is kind of inviting people to think about and remember that we're talking about human beings. So I think that in terms of like human evolution, the kind of basic run-of-the-mill emotions is consistent. So even if we can, we can talk about like technological changes, geographic changes, those might have all happened. But I think that like our ability to be angry, happy, sad, excited or enraged or something like that's been consistent over time. And I guess when I think about your question, I guess I first wonder, when did we decide that Black people were not allowed that full spectrum of emotion or even the the full spectrum of desire? I recently had a conversation with a class of mine. We were talking about anti-literacy laws. And, you know, I think as is customary, students knew about the anti-literacy laws of the 19th century. And I think that there, there's still a belief that Black people were compliant to this particular set of laws. And I was like, since when have human beings been compliant to laws? And, you know, I think this is not a unique question by any stretch, but it was interesting. You know, I, I took it one step further and was like, why would we decide that 19th century Black people were the most compliant human beings, like all throughout humanity. When have human beings been compliant? I think about kind of built into like the idea of compliance. There there seems to be a lack of desire for reading or anything else built in there. So I guess uh, this is my kind of meandering way of being like, why have we decided that there's only one particular set of emotions or desires available to Black people? And simply because someone has decided who they should be, they were like, yep, we should be exactly like that. We shouldn't want to have parties. We shouldn't want to to be non-compliant because we're the best human beings to ever live. Like, no, it just, there's something deeply nonsensical to me about that. The question I've gotten has been, like, why would you want to talk about happy slaves? That's such a problem. Or, you know, how could it be the case that enslaved had joy too. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, well, like, 
does it make sense to deny Black people the full run of the their humanity? Under what parameters does that make sense? You know, I think I'm just led to be like, racism would make that argument. And so I'm not team racism, just to be clear. I'm not here to put forward the idea that simply because someone said that Black people should behave in this way, or that they should look this way, or that they are this way, that Black people were like, oh, of course, we will do exactly that. No, uh uh-uh. And I guess, you know, that was what to me was most striking about like getting into this research as a graduate student and being like, oh my God, this is so apparent that they enjoyed themselves. This is so apparent that friendship was something that they valued or faith or righteous anger. Like this feels novel to me because I am kind of the fool that believed that they would not have access to those feelings. And yet it's right there on the page. It's sort of like it's giving into the white supremacist happy slave narrative. Just saying that an enslaved person was was having a party and like playing fiddle on a plantation isn't saying they were like happy because they were slaves. It's like they're happy because they're human beings who are able to, you know, experience the entire depth of human emotion, like you said. Yeah. And I think that so much of the human condition means sitting with paradox. You know, it, it means sitting with the kind of complexity of the external world that may have ideas about who you are and who you should be. And then there's, you know, kind of the self as the individual who also has to make choices about how they feel and, you know, when they feel, where they feel. And I think that to me, they're just kind of countless examples of individual persons realizing that there's so much more to them that is not and cannot be defined by the larger system, even if it's the case that the larger political system social system, community system, whatever the system might be, is imposing upon them. They can still make the decision and do make the decision to move as they, as they see fit. I think that's exactly right. The letter we're going to be talking about today is from Phyllis Wheatley. Would you mind, for my listeners who might need a refresher on who Phyllis Wheatley is, could you introduce her? On the one hand, that feels like an easy question. You know, Phyllis Wheatley is best known as the Boston-based enslaved girl poet who is the first Black woman, first Black person to publish book of poetry from the American colonies. What I've learned, though, over these years is that, like, that brief bio, which is so often how Wheatley is defined, kind of does little to help us understand this woman who lived to be about 31 years old, is enslaved to the Wheatley family. Some say she's named after the boat that brings her from West Africa to Boston. And at a young age, she begins to write poems, the first of which is published in the Newport Mercury in 1767. She eventually marries John Peters. She may or may not have children. There's some kind of debate about that. But I guess the deeper I dig into Wheatley's life, the more I'm sure that I'm not as able to actually say who Phyllis Wheatley is. I'll just leave it at that, acknowledging that, you know, with every kind of new biography, Vincent Coretta, 
David Wallstreicher. Like it, it, it's clear that there's so much more to this woman's brief life than what we have known before, known to wonder before. So I think it's, it's a neat time in kind of the study of Phyllis Wheatley to see see what people have, have found out more about who she is. When I thought about Phyllis Wheatley, I always knew about her poetry, but I didn't realize that there had been surviving letters that had been published and available for a really long time before I read your book. And I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> they're, they're right there. Do you find if you look at Wheatley's letters and her poetry, do you see sort of different sides of her personality, of sort of the limited glimpses that we're able to get from these writings? Do you notice any difference in her writing and her letters and her poetry? Well, I think that the, the poems kind of are written with a poetic voice in mind. They are not, or at least I would not necessarily assume them to be inherently biographical. You know, I think that they are an opportunity for Wheatley to be creative in ways that may not completely align with who she is as a person. I think the letters give us a glimpse of Wheatley as a person. I think the letters kind of help us see, can help us see her, her humor at times, her friendship at other times, her business savvy at other times too. So I'm a big fan of the letters. I think the letters are kind of completely under discussed and I want more people to read the letters, talk about the letters. The poems, I mean, are fine. We can keep talking about them. But I think the real kind of treasure trove is the letters. And, you know, kind of to your earlier point about like letters between black women. You know, I think Wheatley and, and Tanner's letters might still kind of be the largest extant collection of 18th century letters between Black women. So, you know, I think that's kind of cool. That's so cool because the, the letters I've been able to use from enslaved women so far on the podcast have mostly, I believe, been to their owners. And that is going to completely change the tone and of everything that's written. I used one um, that was a woman writing to her son but she was narrating it to a white man who was going to write it and then deliver it to their owner as well. So I think that to just have a letter that's just between two friends is just fabulous. So that sort of introduces us to the next character in these letters. Uh, we're going to be talking about a letter from Phyllis Wheatley to her friend, Ober Tanner. What do we know about Ober Tanner? Oh my gosh, that's also one of those questions that on the one hand, you know, a certain number of years ago, I might've been like, Ober Tanner is from Newport, Rhode Island. She's enslaved to James Tanner of Newport, Rhode Island. She eventually marries Barry Collins in the 1790s and is president of the Women's Auxiliary of the Free African Union Society at some point. And, and she dies about 1835. That's grossly inadequate is what I am learning at present. I think that there's so much more to Tanner's life that requires even more kind of engagement with primary sources and, and paying that much closer attention to who she is and who she is within the context of Newport, Rhode Island, which has this vibrant, large-ish for New England, Black community in the 18th century. So, you know, I think at this point, like, oh my goodness, I made these assumptions back then. And now I am realizing the extent to which 
there's so much more to know about Tanner and Wheatley and about their friendship. I guess I'm just excited for it. Do we know anything about like how they met? Do you think, was it through church or is there any discussion about that? I think that what's interesting is we've got these letters between these two women and I think there are about eight of them extant. And in the way of correspondence between friends, they literally don't answer any of the questions that we would want to know. Why? Because they already know the answers. So much in the same way that you wouldn't recount how you met your bestie over and over again to your bestie, they don't either. I don't exactly know how they meet, but I think that what's clear is that there's a lot of movement between Newport and Boston. I think that the kind of congregational church community is one source of of the flow of people. I think also just trading between merchants. So Nathaniel Wheatley does a lot of business in Newport and also Providence, Rhode Island. So I think that there are potentially a number of reasons that Wheatley and Tanner would meet and know one another, but I, I can't necessarily pin down exactly how it happened. It would be silly to write a letter and be like, oh, remember that day. And maybe it happens, but like, it's not going to happen enough for me to, you know what I mean? In the eight letters, yeah. (laughs) To set up sort of the context of this exact letter to sort of set the scene before we get into it. Do we know what is going on in Wheatley and Tanner's lives at about the time that this letter was written, which is October 30th, 1773? So I think it's interesting to think first about how old they are. Tanner and Wheatley, kind of to the best of my knowledge and with the help of Vincent Coretta's biography, are likely peerish in age. And at this point, they are maybe in their late teens, early 20s. So they're youngish. What I think is important to make note of is the fact that the Revolutionary War isn't warring just yet, but the march to it is beginning. So Wheatley has already kind of lived through the Boston Massacre, which is down the street from where she lives. 1772 is the Gatsby Affair in Newport, Rhode Island, where Tanner lives. 1773, Wheatley goes to England and eventually comes back and her books make their way to the colonies as well. And I think according to the Boston Tea Party Museum, the book of poems are on the same ship as the tea that ends up in the Boston Harbor. So I think that what's interesting about this moment in time is thinking about Wheatley and Tanner as part of this revolutionary scene. They don't necessarily know that there's going to be a declaration of independence yet. They don't know that, you know, the battles of Lexington and Concord are on their way. But what they do know is that there's discussions about the possibility. And, you know, I think thinking about the attestation to Wheatley's book of poems, you've got men who will be loyalists and men who will be patriots all on this particular page at this moment. So I think that for me, what is most interesting about the kind of context of this 
is that if we think about it, if we remember this part, is that there are these two Black women that are living through the emergence of this life-altering, nation-building war. And I think it's not often the case that we think about Black women as central to the story of the American Revolution. And I think their correspondence in some respects is kind of part of that story, even if this particular letter isn't a letter that's like, oh, BT dubs, the war is coming. You know, it's still the case that they are part of the kind of social fabric that's living through this very real sort of experience. And Wheatley's trying to sell a book, which is also interesting too. She wants the subscribers. She wants the money from those subscriptions. So as the revolutionary fervor is building in the background, she also is working with her friend to sell books. There's an interesting backdrop. And they live where the war eventually happens, but also where the conversations that at the very least have become super canonical for us are happening. They are really in the mix, which is kind of cool to think about. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for setting up the context. I think we can go ahead and read the letter. Boston, October 30th, 1773. Dear Uber, I received your most kind epistle of August 27th and October 13th by a young man of your acquaintance for which I am obliged to you. I hear of your welfare with pleasure, but this acquaints you that I am at present indisposed by a cold and since my arrival have been visited by the asthma. Your observations on our dependence on the deity and your hopes that my wants will be supplied from his fullness, which is in Christ Jesus, is truly worthy of yourself. I can't say, but my voyage to England has conduced to the recovery in a great measure of my health. The friends I found there among the nobility and gentry, their benevolent conduct towards me, the unexpected and unmerited civility and complacence, with which I was treated by all fills me with astonishment and I can scarcely realize it. This I humbly hope has the happy effect of lessening me in my own esteem. Your reflections on the sufferings of the Son of God and the inestimable price of our immortal souls plainly demonstrate the sensations of a soul united to Jesus. What you observe of Esau is true of all mankind, who left to themselves would sell their heavenly birthrights for a few moments of sensual pleasure whose wages at last, dreadful wages, is eternal condemnation. Dear Uber, let us not sell our birthrights for a thousand worlds, which indeed would be as dust upon the balance. The God of the seas and dry land has graciously brought me home in safety. Join me in thanks to him for so great a mercy, and that it may excite me to praise him with cheerfulness, to persevere in grace and faith, and in the knowledge of our creator and redeemer that my heart may be filled with gratitude. I should have been pleased greatly to see Miss West as I imagined she knew you. I have been very busy ever since my arrival, or should have, now wrote a more particular account of my voyage, but must submit that satisfaction to some other opportunity. I am, dear friend, most affectionately ever yours, Phyllis Wheatley. My mistress has been very sick, above 14 weeks, confined to her bed the whole time, but is, I hope, somewhat better now. The young man by whom this is handed you seems to me to be a very clever man, knows you very well, and is very complacent and agreeable. P.W. I enclose proposals for my book, 
and beg you to use your interest to get subscriptions as it is for my benefit. Well, I think this is a really interesting letter. I like how she starts it where she says she's been visited by the asthma. <laughs> it's just a nice way to say, I've been having some asthma, but it's not that serious. And of course, she's a poet. When you first read this letter, what struck you about this letter? I think what struck me first, if I kind of go back in time, I think what got me really was kind of the religious language and I guess the the way that she invokes biblical references in the letter. So it almost seems like uh, I'm going to tell you how I am briefly. I'm going to have like a a mini Bible study and then we'll talk maybe very briefly about my book. So I, I was struck by by that. And I was also struck by the way that she seems to reference what Tantner has said. So she talks about your observations on our dependence or your reflections on the sufferings of the Son of God. So it seems to me that the the letters that precede this from Tanner, you know, Tanner's letters are not extant at present. It gives me a glimpse of what it is that Tanner may have been talking about in those letters too. It sounds to me sort of on the the idea of pleasures is that these are two women who are taking pleasure in sort of negotiating their own religion. Like you said, it's like a Bible study. They're talking about their faith in a way that it's personal to them and they're sort of growing each other's faith with each other. The way she says, your observations is truly worthy of yourself. And dear Ober, let us not sell our birthrights for a thousand worlds. Like that's a really lovely sentiment. And you can tell that they're very close to each other and they're having a really rich conversation. Yeah. And it's an ongoing conversation, too. And I think that the idea that she's heard from Tanner, August 27th, October 13th, no, I think that there really is a way that there's a, a back and forth and even a consistency in communication. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, she went to England and she mentions it like a little bit, but not a whole lot. But mostly what they're talking about is faith still, I think is interesting. I read a lot of 18th century letters and a lot of times, sometimes the, the faith stuff is like sort of rote. <laughs> like it's like, this is what we have to write because an 18th century woman writing a letter and I have to say some things about God in it. But this doesn't feel like that at all. <laughs> this feels like somebody being very thoughtful to me. Oh, that's interesting. I have wondered the extent to which what Wheatley is doing is part of the custom and what part belongs to their friendship in particular. If something bad happens, then it's like in 18th century, you were contractually obligated to say like, but this is what God's will. Can't complain about anything because this is what God wants for me. And it's like, everybody has to write that. And this certainly isn't that. One of the lines that struck me where she talks about how she was greeted by the British people and the, the gentry and the nobility. So it seems like she's talking about things that might be, you know, very complimentary to her, that people were very kind to her and all that. And then she says, I hope this has the happy effect of lessening me in my own esteem. Now that kind of feels like one of those things that's like, I can't get too full of myself in, as a religious person. Do you have a take on what she meant in that, in that segment? Do you think it's an exercise in 18th century religious self-abnegation? Or do you think that she's sort of working through 
where does her self-esteem fit as a Black woman meeting with people and writing a book and selling a book? How does she manage that? I guess what I kind of heard was that I guess she was feeling herself and is maybe, but would rather have the impact of the pomp and circumstance surrounding her, the folks that she gets to meet. I mean, she's gifted a bunch of books at some point. And I think that her trip is a really big deal. It, to me, reads like I absolutely was and am feeling myself, but I'm hoping that instead of just living in my own fame, what I do is become more humble in that. I guess that's my my interpretation of it. But I think that what's, I guess, most interesting is a sitting with the possibility of both a kind of religious self-deprecation and also the, the fact that Wheatley's clear that she is building fame. And she seems to you know, move like a woman who increasingly understands that. And I think that there's something important and neat and curious about allowing her the space to be all of those things. Yeah. Because she, at the end of the letter, she does mention, she says, I beg you, use your interest to get subscriptions for my book as it is in my benefit. She's selling a book at the same time as all this is happening. She's selling a book and she knows that her book is selling as well, or is at the very least knows that she is doing the things that help the book sell. At this point, it's published. So there are other letters after this that are in part about the sale of her book in Newport, Rhode Island. So she talks to Reverend Samuel Hopkins about it. She talks again to Uber Tanner. I mean, at some point she talks about like making sure there are no pirated copies in New Haven, Connecticut. What she wants is that book sold and she wants the coins associated with it. <laughs> you mentioned that there's a fairly large Black population in Newport, Rhode Island. Do you think that a lot of Black people were buying this book as well as white people? Do we know much about that? I, I can't necessarily confirm or deny that we should not assume that Wheatley is only selling to white people. And I think the Newport community is certainly an interesting case study because they buy books. I do know that about them. And so Ober helps her get subscriptions. That comes up in later letters. They talk about that. Yeah, for sure. She is successful and she sends Wheatley money. So they are good friends. And it's also kind of a business partnership as well, a little bit. Yeah. To me is almost an invitation to think about the fact that like Uber Tanner is traipsing through Newport or going to church on Sundays and saying, you need to buy my girl's book. And people do. And she's still enslaved at, at this point. Phyllis Wheatley was eventually freed. Wheatley is eventually freed. And Tanner, I don't know exactly when. Tanner gets her freedom. When the British occupy Newport between 1776 and 1779, she goes to Worcester with the Tanner family that has enslaved her. Worcester, Massachusetts. I don't know what her status is or when it changes. I like the idea that she's using the time that she has to help another enslaved person when most of her time is supposed to be, you know, only for the benefit of her enslaver. She's benefiting who she wants to benefit sometimes. Right. When I think this is kind of returns me to my former point. It's like, who said that her time has to be exclusively for 
the people who own her? Like, according to who? And if that is the case, like, why, why would we believe her to be like, sure, I'll give you every ounce of my time. There's something deeply absurd about that, right? Maybe legally that was supposed to be the case, but practically, no. Historically, when has that ever been the case? Like you said. She mentions that her mistress is sick. Do you know if that's Susanna Wheatley's final illness? Yeah, I think Susanna Wheatley will very shortly pass away. I think in 1774. I was sort of struck a little bit by the line where she talks about the young man who delivered the letter. So you mentioned that they're teens or early 20s. And she says he seems to be a very clever man who knows you very well and is very complacent and agreeable. Do you think there is a little, is there a little hint in here? Do you think there might be like a little flirtation or something going on or maybe teasing over about it? Well, I I guess that's what I was going to ask is like, who's the flirtation with? So is it the case that she is saying this because Uber has expressed an interest? Is she saying this because she is expressing an interest? Yeah, I have no idea. My first thought was, because he says he seems to know you very well, as maybe he was sort of asking her, like, whether or not Uber would be interested. <laughs> but I read a lot in the letters. I, I sometimes make some leaps that I probably should not. That's curious to me, for sure. It feels worth noting that Uber Tanner holds on to these letters. And, you know, of the eight that are extant, she gives them to her pastor's wife. And I, you know, at some point got to wondering, like, if I'm giving my letters to my pastor's wife at the end of my life, she gives them to her in about 1833, 1834-ish. If she's given these letters over, like, has she actually given all of the letters? Do you give all of your letters to your pastor's wife? Especially all your letters that you're writing kind of in your 20s? So, you know, might the answer to our question about this young man be in another set of letters where maybe he has a name, maybe where we better understand the relationship? I can't know for sure, but it hit me at some point that Tanner may have made a like curatorial decision to not give the entire volume of letters to her pastor's wife who at this point is also 50 years younger than her. Yeah, and, and maybe that's why these are the, the most religious ones. These are super churchy because you give your churchy letters to your pastor's wife, for sure. Yeah, that there can be some curating happening, I think makes perfect sense for this. I didn't even think about that, though. <laughs> yeah, like you're not going to give, you know, all of your letters to your pastor's wife. Like, come on. So to sort of sum up, what do you think is the most important thing for people to understand about this letter or to take away after this episode about Phyllis Wheatley? You know, I think that the most important thing is kind of what I ended on, which is that Uber Tanner keeps these letters. I can't quite let that go. So this letter is from 1773. Tanner gives her letters to her pastor's wife, Catherine Eads Beecher, in 1833-ish. We get this glimpse of Wheatley's life, her trip to England, the sale of her books, the visit with the asthma, because her friend, for 50 years, keeps 
these letters and without the help of plastic, without the help of like, she didn't laminate them. She didn't put them in some sort of acid free box. She ends up a refugee from the Revolutionary War living in Worcester. There are other moves that she must have to make in that 50 year span of time. And yet she keeps these letters. So what does that mean when we think about their friendship? What does that mean when we think about kind of the legacy of Wheatley? So 250 years this year since the poems on various subjects was published. And, you know, I think that we know Wheatley because that book was published. We don't know anything about Tanner because she didn't publish the book. But we know Tanner because she gave her letters to Kathleen Beecher. My other takeaway is that situating these two Black women as they write their letters, as they are, you know, kind of shifting from being teenagers into 20-somethings, their letter writing will eventually be disrupted by this war. They will have to move as a result of it. And I guess I'm so intrigued by the idea of like, if we put them at the center of the war, how does that change the way we talk about the war? How does it change the way we think about Wheatley and her letters and her poems? You know, if we we lead with the fact that her book of poems comes back on the same boat that has the tea, what then does that mean? I'm struck by both of those things. Tanner's choice to remember her friend and Wheatley and Tanner as kind of part of this revolutionary era's fervor and very much interwoven into the fabric of it. It's fascinating. It's a different side from the revolution than you usually think about. I think that's so cool. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bynum, for coming onto the podcast. This has been such a great conversation. I have enjoyed it immensely. Thank you for having me. This has been delightful. And anyone's ever stuck in an elevator with me, just ask me about Wheatley's letters to Uber Tanner. <laughs> I'll just go. There's so much more to say. Thank you so much for coming on. For my listeners, we will link to the text of this letter and other show notes. And I am, as ever, your most obedient and humble servant. Thank you very much. Your Most Obedient and Humble Servant is a production of R2 Studios at the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media at George Mason University. I'm Catherine Garrett, the creator and host of this podcast. Jeanette Patrick and Jim Embusky are the executive producers. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to listen to past episodes and check out more great podcasts from R2 Studios. We tell unexpected stories based on the latest research to connect listeners with the past. So head to r2studios.org to start listening. <laughs>